Welcome to Controversy and Clarity, a podcast of the Warfighting Society. I'm your host, Damien O'Connell, and you're listening to Episode 2, Season 4. A quick admin note, the response to our last episode, the first in our Voices of H. Kaya series, has been overwhelmingly positive. I'm very glad and grateful to see the episode doing some good, and I hope future episodes do the same. In that vein, today's episode continues the H. Kaya series. Our guest today is Sergeant Dustin Casey the squad leader of 3rd Squad, 3rd Platoon, Alpha Company, 1st Battalion, 8th Marine Regiment, or 1-8. Dustin is currently 22 years old, making him the show's youngest guest ever. Last year, he was a 21-year-old corporal at H. Kaya, serving as a fire team leader with 2nd Squad, 1st Platoon, Alpha Company. Here's Dustin's bio. At age 17, on September 11th, 2016, Dustin enlisted in the Marine Corps during his senior year of high school with his parents' permission. He graduated high school in 2017 and underwent basic training at Marine Corps Recruit Depot Paris Island in September 2017, graduating in December of that year. Designated an infantryman, Dustin trained at Infantry Training Battalion, School of Infantry East at Camp Geiger, North Carolina. He next received further training at Marine Corps Security Forces Training Company, Chesapeake, Virginia, and then was assigned to Fleet Anti-Terrorism Security Team Forces Bravo Company in Yorktown, Virginia, joining the unit in May 2018. Dustin's first deployment was to Yokosuka, Japan from October 2018 to April 2019. He attended the helicopter rope suspension techniques course in November 2020. His next deployment was to Guantanamo Bay, Cuba from December 2019 to June 2020. He then checked into 1-8 in August 2020 and deployed with the battalion as part of the 24th Marine Expeditionary Unit from February 2021 to September 2021. After returning home to Camp Lejeune, he successfully completed Advanced Infantry Marine Course in January 2022 and Infantry Small Unit Leaders Course in April 2022 at Advanced Infantry Training Battalion East. Listeners may note some slight discrepancies between Dustin's account of things and that of our previous guest, Major Sam McRury, Dustin's CEO during the HKI Neo. Nate Fick, a Marine Infantry Officer and author of the war memoir One Bullet Away, wrote this about how members of the same unit experience chaotic events like combat. Quote, Combat is a form of vertigo. I was trained to thrive on chaos, but nothing prepared me for the fear of doubting my own senses. Frequently, I found that my memory of a firefight was just that, mine. Afterward, five Marines told five different stories. End quote. As we release more episodes of the Voices of HKI series, I imagine we'll see more instances of what Vic describes. As with all my active duty guests, I want to stress that Dustin's views are strictly his own and don't reflect the views of his battalion, the U.S. Marine Corps, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. Now, let's get to our conversation with Sergeant Dustin Casey. Dustin, thanks so much for coming on the show. I'm really appreciative of you making the time to chat with us about your experiences at HKIA, and uh, just I want to thank you up front. Hey, thanks, man. Uh, I'm really happy that I'm able to do this. Pretty cool to have a platform or just like have a uh, have a voice because maybe this will encourage some other dudes to start talking, not even in public, but maybe to uh, to whoever. Yeah, I think that'd be great. And for what it's worth, you are the youngest guest we've had on the show. I think you're the uh, first sergeant we've had. And I want to put this out there that your voice, your experience, the voices of, and experiences of, of your peers, your Marines matter. And yeah, if we can get people talking with each other and helping each other out, sharing their their experiences, I think that's that's a good sign. That's a good thing. So we'll start with a few context questions and then uh, just go through the experiences you had at HKIA. 
So first question, what was your deployment like with the 24th Mu prior to heading to HKIA? Where had you been? What had you been doing? So is this like a normal Mu? I didn't expect much out of it. Just like, you know, peacetime, quote unquote. But, you know, everyone's like, oh, you never know what's going to happen on a Mu, yada, yada, yada. But before HKIA, it was just, if we stopped in a country, it was either for training or like Liberty ports. and kind of sucked with COVID at the time, like the Liberty wasn't too good, but that's pretty much it. It was just like training and Liberty ports. And then, I mean, ship life is ship life. So. Did you have any sense that you guys might go and do something early in the deployment or was it, did it seem like you said, if this is just going to be a, a typical Mew, we're, we're going to do training, we're going to do some port calls. We might stand up for a few missions and not do them. Like, did you have that sort of sense? Yeah, so there's like multiple like instances of like all the NCOs getting like pulled together from like like battalion higher. Yeah, just like there was like something going on in Lebanon at the time. There was like talks about maybe like a Nia there, scuttlebutt about like, hey, maybe we'll go here or there. And then like news kind of started like like later on in the deployment. I think we were in CENTCOM, maybe it was before CENTCOM. But uh, like, you know, like Taliban is like gaining ground in Afghanistan. And myself included, along with other dudes, are like, yeah, right. Like, I mean, like, okay, yeah, but like, we're not going to get the call to go in. Like, mm. there's no way, there's no chance. So. Yeah. What training, if any, relevant to the HKI mission did your platoon execute prior to heading to Kabul? I mean, were you guys doing any crowd control training, things like that? So my platoon specifically, crowd control, no. I know before the deployment, like, we, we would do things like ECP, VCP, like searching vehicles, like searching and detaining people. But like, that's, that's it. I don't even think my company, I'm like, maybe there's a few people in my company that did it, did like non-lethal training. I've only had that training just being like prior security forces. Mm -hmm. So that helped me and like some of my, my buddies out that were, that came over from security forces with me. But like, other than like my platoon doing some like ECP, VCP and detainee handling, like that was pretty much it for us. Yeah. How beneficial, how useful, if if at all, was that training once you guys got on the ground and, and were at HKIA? I think like searching bags and whatnot, I think everybody knew what they were, what they were supposed to be looking for. And like that it was done like as quickly and efficiently as we could, as we could do it. But like crowd control, like I honestly want to say like with the lack of training we had for crowd control specifically, my guys, like my like Alpha Company and One Eight, we couldn't have done it any better, especially mm -hmm. with the situation at hand. How many people? Sure. When you got news that Alpha One Eight would be heading to HKIA for sure, when when was that? Do you recall approximately when in the deployment? So I kind of started to realize things were like real when we were still on the boat, and it's like normal like night on the boat. We're all chilling, nothing's going on, and then my platoon sergeant. I love Staff's RT. He's he's an animal. <laughs> but he was super excited. He's just like revved up, bursting the birthing. He's like, get your shit. Like, we're going to the embassy. And that ended up not happening. But like, that's where I was like, holy shit. Like, something could be going down. Something's pretty big. But it got canceled. And I was like, yeah, shocker. Mm -hmm. Like, but was, the question was like, when I knew for sure we were going to HKI specifically. Yeah. yeah. So we were in Kuwait. And while well, we'd been in Kuwait, like we had some dudes working with 
like Air Force security forces, kind of getting like some training with them. But that was like guard post. Going to the gym, eating chow. And my cousin that you've talked to, he hit me up one night. I think it was around midnight. And he said, dude, are you watching the news? I'm like, no, why? He's like, look at what, like, look at the White House press conference right now or whatever it was. And it was the, um, whoever was speaking was like, yeah, we have units in these areas and they're, we're going to activate them to send them. And I was like, like, we are here. Like, this That's is up. Yeah. So that was like three hours prior to my platoon sergeant again, bursting into my squad leader's room, telling them to get everybody up. So like, I kind of went around and I said, yo, like everybody in my platoon, I was like, hey, watch this press conference, get your shit staged, because I'm pretty sure things are going to be happening tonight. And then three hours later, we're getting ready to go. What was your reaction to getting this news and, and realizing this is for real? Like we are actually... All those times that we've been told to stand up and get ready to, to do a mission and it's been called off, we are doing one of the missions assigned to MU. This is actually going to happen. You're a fire team leader at this point. What's going on in your head? One, I'm excited. At the time, I thought I was literally just going to be doing like this MU and then getting out, but I was really excited. I was scared because and I'm sure like I know everybody that's like gone into like a real situation can say the same thing, but it's always like okay, like, have I prepared enough? Am I ready for this? Are my guys ready for this? So it was exciting, but at the same time, it was also really scary and very real. Yeah. What was the vibe? What was the the feeling you were getting from your fellow Marines? You know, what, what did you notice about your fire team members? What did you notice about the squad? Was it a similar combination of excited, but a little scared too? Yeah, I'd say everybody like was showing like a lot of excitement tapping each other up like yo bro like it's happening we're going we're packing bags we're getting pumped it's kind of funny my fire team just with like how our to ended up and my best friend was actually my squad leader we've been together for like four like four or five years like growing up to the marine corps together so that was pretty cool but just because with how the to was it was like me and then my buddy diaz kobo we were just joking around we're like yeah the most lethal buddy team in the marine corps <laughs> yeah so he he was in my team He's just a man of few words, but uh, I think everybody was pretty excited. What was your understanding of the situation on the ground before arriving in country? I just knew that the situation was deteriorating. That's what we had been briefed while we were in Kuwait. And they said that like, we're just going to go to HKIA and pretty much just like man BCPs and ECPs at the gates. Like I didn't really think too much of it. I had no idea how chaotic it actually would be. I mean, I've never experienced people in just total desperation before. So, Your company arrives at HKIA at 0200, 14 August, a Saturday. You're the first Marine combat unit on the scene. Could you talk about that first day? How did the situation align with or differ from what you had been told and expected? So when we first got there, it's like super dark. Like, I didn't even, I don't think I even saw, like, the mountains, like, that were, like, right behind Ajkaya or the city in the distance. It was just, like, it's just kind of, I don't want to say, like, eerie. It was just kind of, I guess, surreal to think that it's, like, myself, like, growing up and wanting to be in the Marine Corps my whole life and fight this war. And it's like, wow, I'm actually in Afghanistan. It was kind of surreal. But then getting there and then just getting, like, briefs. And it's just kind of like, hey, guys, welcome aboard HKIA, yada, yada, yada. It was just like, okay, so we're just like on another base, like just getting an in brief. This is kind of kind of weird. 
So there's nothing to indicate what's ahead. There's nothing to indicate. It was it was totally the calm before the storm. Yeah. Like no best way to describe it. Like we were we got in, we got briefed, like the in brief, like I said. We got settled in like this little compound that we stayed at and they were like, Yeah, chow halls over here. They'd just be around if we need you. Mm-hmm. And it was just kind of like stand the fuck by. Yeah. The next day, 15 August, the Afghan government falls. And thereafter, the Afghan National Defense Security Forces, including those manning the southern perimeter at HKIA, flee their posts. So what happens next for you? What happens for 2nd Squad, 1st Platoon, Alpha Company? So just to start at the beginning, when the government like falls and they start evacuating the embassy, I was actually out on a working party. And... Um, my platoon got tasked with like helping just be like a security presence, I guess, maybe just like to help the DOS, like whoever worked at the embassy, like, I guess, make them feel safe or whatever. I don't know. Pretty much they just kind of got tasked with like handling their luggage and bringing it into the terminal. So I'm on this working party and then I go back to the compound with Alpha Company's at to like bring back all this ammo and whatnot. And my platoon's gone and everybody's asleep and I don't know what the hell is going on. I eventually figure it out. I go to the terminal with my platoon. And we did that for like the first, it was like the first day after, you know, things started kind of rolling. Mm-hmm. A little sleep. The ANA, like we went to the Afghan side. Like after that, the terminal, we went over to the Afghan side to a VCP with just regular ANA guys still there. They looked super suspect. But yeah, we, we were there with them for a little bit and they kind of like prayed. Then they gathered up all their weapons and then they just left. And we had like, we really had like no idea. We were told like not to let anybody on the base, but then it's just like, I don't know. I think it was like maybe like Afghan, like special forces or whatever it was like NDS, I think is what they were called. And like, they're coming in and it's just like, it is just like super confusing. I don't, I don't really know. It was, we, we ended up staying there for a bit and then we just kind of, we just left. Like there was, no, I don't think there was really like a task there, at least from what I can recall. It was just the ANA dipped, and we were just like, "What the hell are we doing here?" Mm-hmm. Could you describe your squad's actions on 16 August? This is the day where you've got thousands and thousands of Afghans on the runway, and Alpha 18, along with some other ground units, are tasked with clearing this runway. Yeah, so it was pretty much right after we left that ANA checkpoint. On the Afghan side of Hkaya, and uh, we headed back to our compound. We're like, holy shit, you know, we've been up for a while. We're try- going to try to lay down and get some rest. And I think it was like 30 minutes later, if that, we get this call. It's like, hey, like 100, 150 Taliban fighters have broken on the airfield with AKs. There was like another like rumor that it's like we were about to go on the airfield and like we were about to be like set security for CAG doing a hostage rescue on like a plane on the tarmac. Like, just some wild shit. And the whole company is, like, out there trying to get into these Bearcats. And everybody's just, like, holy shit. Like, everybody's amped up. Adrenaline's going. Like, with all these rumors floating around. Our first sergeants actually, like, took the time and, like, called us down. And calmed us down. Excuse me. But then we just packed in these Bearcats. I think they sit, like, maybe 10 or 11 dudes. We packed, like, 23 people in, like, each of these Bearcats. Like, sardines. Dudes are laying on top of each other. I like I was the last one to get the bearcat I was in. Like I'm just like with all my gear on, everyone's like just super crunched up right next to the door. And then like we're rolling over curbs. 
and we like show up on the tarmac and it's like i open the door and i'm like first one out and then i just start hearing like i start hearing machine gun fire i see tracers and it's like it's confusing but like i find kobo find champlin who was my squad leader and we get in line on the tarmac and then like those tracers bounce off the deck again so we thought we were getting shot at at first but just trying to get like an essay it's like we just see this this, this huge mob of people and we're like what like what the hell is going on so it's like i just you know like just kind of like with all the chaos i remember calling out like hey just watch their hands make sure nobody has ak's or weapons of any kind like Luckily for me, I had 24 alphas on, so like I was able to like look through my RCO, see pretty clearly everybody's hands and whatnot. But I didn't see any weapons. It was just this massive mob of desperate people. If you had to put a number to it, a guesstimate, how large do you think that group was? I think at first, like we thought maybe like like from my point of view, like maybe like a couple hundred. Like I don't know. It just I didn't really see it until like we started pushing them towards the civilian terminal everybody's like like it's just like down it just stretched the whole turn like the whole civilian i think that was at the southern end i think i don't know but yeah like the non-military side of hki like they mm-hmm. just stretched that terminal completely like and i was like holy shit like this is a lot of people yeah so you're tasked along with the rest of the company to start pushing these people off the airfields could you talk about that experience? I mean, what's it like pushing what looks like thousands of people off an airfield? How does how does a Marine rifle company, a squad, a platoon, how, how do they do that? So it was tough. So when we, like I said, we rolled up and we got out, we got online, we got prone because, you know, this week, we, you know, we thought we were getting shot at or whatever. We eventually like stood up and we got online because they were all trying to cram into the C-17. We just kind of got online and we just kind of started slowly like, like what muzzles down and like we just kind of started like just like a normal like riot control formation i guess you know just like like move back move back and like we all kind of like started moving online like it, it was it was honestly really really good like implicit communication for the most part there were squad leaders you know controlling certain dudes huge props to like major mcgurry and even the even the battalion commander and sergeant major they were out there with us the only way it could have been more badass is they would have shown up on horseback. <laughs> but uh, yeah, like a lot of just like implicit communication, I suppose. Like we all, everybody was just like on the same page. Everybody had, you know, really, really awesome, like discipline, you know. But I guess there was a little bit of a pause. It was just kind of like, what the hell did we do? Because we didn't have riot shields or anything to just push it back. So it was just like, well, like we have our physical presence. So let's just, you know, let's just start moving them back. I know someone had like a strobe light and they're like, it was pretty powerful, like strobe flashlight, like kind of like disorienting the crowd, mm-hmm. shining their faces. Um, yeah, just like whatever means that we could push them across the airfield, like without like over escalating mm-hmm. our force, if that makes any sense. Yeah, like, yeah, it does. Did you get a sense of the crowd's composition? Is it? a mix of men, women, and children? Is it mostly men, older men, younger men, a mix of the two? It was, it was from my perspective, and just, I guess, with how dark it is, I'd say it was, at first, it was, like, a really good mix. There's a lot of families. There was um, a lot of, like, women, kids. I mean, there obviously was, like, a good amount of military-age males, but there was a lot of families. 
what were some of the tough decisions you had to make on this day? If, if I'm not mistaken, you were dealing with this crowd for hours, early hours into and, and past the, the day. And what was that like? It's really, it was really tough. Just like morally, like I couldn't imagine personally, like having to try to like just get my family to safety. I, I would never know that desperation personally, but like you can see it, you can see it in a lot of their faces. And that's what, that's what was so hard because it was like we had a job to do and we were going to do our job. But, you know, it was it was it was heartbreaking. You know, it was really tough just to see pure fear and a lot of uh, like a lot of innocent faces like like young, like young women, girls, especially especially the women, because, like you know, everybody knows. I mean, if everybody's a little educated on how the Taliban treat women, like you can kind of understand like how scared they were sure. yeah i think some of the tougher moments was like and like i said like we, we had a job to do and i think this is just you know just hurt like morally to do it but like there was there was one guy he was he was a military-aged male i think maybe he was around my age he was a college dude and there was like him and then like there was another guy and his wife and like you know they're scared and they're like we're pushing them back and like you guys are pushing us into like the mouth of the monster and i was like I was like, you know, I don't want to do this. And then like this one guy just kind of stopped. He was like, I know and that was, that was pretty tough. He, he said that to you in English. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, cause like, we're just trying to like, we want, we want to help them, but like they cannot, you cannot help them by just letting them storm the airfield. Right. There's, there's a process that has to be done in order to evacuate them safely. And I knew that. But it was, you know, it was just, it was a, it was a tough task, but, you know, it needed to get done. So were you hearing a lot of Afghans speaking, yelling in English to you guys? There was some, yeah, there was, there, there was like a lot of, uh, I mean, I mean, I'll just, I'll just be up front. I mean, like for me personally, a lot of women, they would like beg for me to just kill them. Like they much rather be killed by me than the Taliban or the Taliban would do. You never like, you know, like, I guess like any normal person ever grows up like wondering what it would be like to like, have someone like beg and plead with tears in their eyes for you to kill them. And it's, 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 it's powerful. Wow. That's tough, man. That's yeah, it's, yeah, it, it sucked. Oh, um, yeah, I don't know what to say to that. Uh, and that's just like day one, or that's that's the sixth. That's like the first. That's like the first night. <laughs> like the first night. Like there, there's that. Like uh, there, there's there's a lot of it throughout. But yeah, it started like the first night into the next day. Like. When we heard, when we first heard that there was a gate to let them in to process them, like that's that's immediately what I started telling everybody to do. I was like, "Hey, Abbey Gate. It's like you have to go back out the civilian terminal. You have to go down to Abbey Gate." And there was this group of girls, and um, they were saying that we can't go back out there. Like the Taliban will kill us. Like the Taliban will kill us. And um, I was like, "Like you have to go to Abbey Gate. Like I don't." I don't know what to tell you. 
early in 1H time at H. Kaya, elements of the battalion got into several gunfights with Taliban forces. At least that's that's my understanding. Could you describe these, especially any involving your platoon? So let me like kind of like backtrack into like when we actually like started doing, like started executing some tasks. Uh, I know second platoon, they were like, this was before I like my platoon got to that ANA checkpoint on the ANA side of the uh, the base. But I know second platoon, I'm pretty sure they took some pot shots from a sniper. I don't know if anybody returned fire. And then like fast forward to like us being, so when we were pushing all these people across the airfield, like platoon, squad, fire team integrity, like and this, this is another reason why I'm so proud of Alpha was just because like everything was so chaotic and with just how things were and like, hey, we, we need four Marines here. We need five Marines here. Just like guys can call left and right, everybody doing what they needed to do. You know, like organization got jumbled up real bad. I wasn't with my squad, my team for a little while. Eventually, once we got everybody back to that civilian terminal and we got some C-wire established, that's when I was actually able to go link up with, you know, my the guys in my platoon and start figuring things out. But the, the yeah, gunfight. You can continue on that line, man, if you want to keep talking about that. Um, no, I was just like, I was just saying how... Um, Going back to like implicit communication, everybody knew what needed to be done and everybody did it. It didn't matter what, it didn't matter what platoon you were in. It didn't matter what squad you were in or what fire team. Like everybody knew what to do and everybody worked together. Like it was just, it was awesome. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, the next moment of like some, like a gunfight where like the most I saw, I think I saw like some sketchy dude with a weapon up in the, up inside the terminal, the civilian terminal. Like I saw him very briefly and then I'm on the right side and then there's like the terminal and then there's like this gate to like more to my left. And I just kind of hear like, bop, bop, like of an AK up in the air. And then all of a sudden I just start hearing like suppressors, like just like, just fucking just start hearing the suppressors. And then I finally like, yo, we're fucking, we're in it. I like like the civilians, like in front of me, just like look, panic stricken like they're just absolute fierce like i just kind of like look at them i yell to get down i point to the ground they all crouch and there was nothing i could have done from my position but then my xo ran up and he was like what's going on i'm like sir i believe there's like two ekia that's further down the line but eventually like eventually you know like i did see you know some dude looked like he was just laid out on the tar just taking a nap and his new alpha company put in some good work and canceled the birth certificate of a bad dude are there other firefights that happened during the rest of alpha one eight's time there i don't believe so i think bravo company they took some rounds from because they they worked at northgate with us they took some rounds from like the building right across the street i believe not positive so don't don't quote me on it like i'm not in bravo i can't speak for their experiences but my own my own experience i think that was like that's where that one at the terminal. I think that's where that's the only one that I'm that I'm tracking on that 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 pot shot that second took. On 16 August, the Taliban offered to help clear the airfield of civilians. Is that does that sound right to you? So I don't I don't recall the Taliban being on the airfield itself. I knew 
I had no idea that like the Taliban were even down to help. Like I, I still like I'm, I'm not even gonna speak on it. But uh no, I don't no Taliban were on the airfield with us. They were I believe the agreement that was struck up was just that they would help kind of maintain the flow of people going into or heading to HKIA from outside. But so yeah. They'd be outside the airfield. Yeah, so it was like outside like the terminals, like just leading to all the gates. So I know when we ended up going to Northgate, there was like a checkpoint further down the road. There was one night where this truck pulled up and inside was like Taliban man. Oh, let me backtrack again. I'm sorry. So after the airfield got situated, I think it was it was NSU. You said I always heard NSU or NDS was like the yeah. Uh, I've heard both acronyms. Yeah. So they came in and then they like really helped. Like like we like just two one came and then I think it was like the final night of that that the civilian terminal getting like secured. We finally got a rest. My apologies if things kind of seem all over the place. It's just like yeah. I was like up for like three days straight. So like all the dates. No apologies. Kind of- no apologies needed. All good, man. Yeah. So I think we got some rest and then we went back out. Either we got some rest and we went back out to um, the airfield or we were at Northgate for the first time. But anyway, I remember being on the airfield, just like a quote unquote defensive line. We were just all on the prone like out in the open and then the engineer set up some sea wire in front of us now was to prevent like another mob storm in the runway and i remember on like the bridge that leads into like passenger planes like there's like this group of dudes and out comes this guy he's just wearing like you know these brown man jammas and he's got a chest rig on he's got an ak slung right by his hip and He's got a brand new iPhone and he's just sitting there with a big old smirk on his face, recording us all laying there. Like through my RCO, like the horseshoe, like lined up perfectly with this man's shoulders. And it was just, just waiting. I'm just like, everybody's just waiting to lay into these dudes. I'm like, hey, no, like don't shoot them. And I was just kind of like, what the hell is going on? And um, then we go to Northgate, like I mentioned earlier, and there was this one Taliban dude that like showed up in this truck because we we're like trying to, you know, do some more crowd control. He gets out and we're like, what the hell? And now there's like Taliban, like, like I could reach out with my arm and touch this dude. And it's just like, what the, it was just, it's just so confusing. It was like, what the hell is going on? What, what's going on in your mind when you hear that the Taliban have offered their assistance and that That's, you're going to work with them? In my mind, I was pissed. I was like, fuck that. I'd rather that. i rather these dudes try to attack the base. Like, honestly, I'd rather go down, like, fighting. That's just me personally. How did you get word that the Taliban were now assisting you? I think it was, like, right after that that encounter with the that Taliban fighter at Northgate. Because, like, he pulled up. Like, thank God our XO was there. Because we probably would have laid into this dude. But... Yeah, he's there, and, like, he was making gestures, like, hey, do you guys want me to shoot into the crowd? Or, like, hey, do you guys want, like, you want to trade rifles? It's, like, dude spoke no English, but it's, like, he's trying to be, like, a weird buddy-buddy. But, like, I don't know, I heard him, him, my other buddy, like, almost got into it. as he, like, my buddy tried to, like, you know, like, he pushed a woman back. You're not supposed to touch a woman or whatever. And this dude, like, slapped him on the shoulder, and it was just, like, it was very tense. Like, it was just very confusing and it was like just very tense could you talk about how the taliban were treating the civilians um 
I mean, it's Taliban. Like they're just they're just not they're just not good people. Like maybe it's just a cultural thing too, because it's like I saw like the NDS NSU guys. Like you know they were they had some pretty unconventional crowd control methods, if you will. But yeah, I'm pretty sure like the Taliban were. You know, I heard that they were like whipping people with like ammunition, like belts of ammunition, probably just like butt stroking people, like just using their AKs as like a club. I heard from some other friends from some other companies that like Taliban probably just like execute some people like this kind of like out of sight, but you kind of like they kind of knew what was happening. I don't know 100%, but yeah, they were, they were probably just giving civilians a real hard time. Mm-hmm. When your platoon is holding that defensive line, what's the state of your squad? What, what's your state? I mean, you've been up this entire time, right? Since you've touched down? Not since like we touched down. Like, we had a little bit of rest when we first got there. It was like once I went on that working party, that's when things kind of started kicking into gear. Yeah, so we, we got a little bit of rest, and then we went to that, that defensive line. And uh, we, were, we were just there for a while. I mean, we we're all just pretty tired. I mean... Yeah, we we were just tired. Adrenaline was still high when we first got there. You know, we thought stuff was for sure gonna you know go down again. But there was a crazy incident where like a Afghan Airlines like or Calm Air, I think is what it's called, a plane just like starts rolling. His regular passenger planes like kind of like starts rolling on the tarmac, and then it just kind of like looks at us, and we thought it was gonna try to like do some wild shit, but like, like try to run you guys over or push you out of the way or. Yeah, like it just kind of turned and then it's like it was just looking at us like it's like engines are rolling and it's just like facing us where it's like what the hell is going on it was weird like just and then there was that that taliban encounter that like i mentioned earlier with the dude on the bridge and that's that's pretty that's pretty much how it was on that defensive line if you will by this point has the rest of 1-8 arrived are, are all the companies on the ground now yeah yeah i think I noticed it was like the last day. I think it was like rolling into day three of like clearing the tarmac. It was like after two, like I noticed like the first time we got relieved for like a few minutes, like two, one had gotten there. And then the video, I'm sure you've seen, like, I'm sure everybody's seen the videos of like the Apaches flying real low to the ground, like all those people. I think that was like day three. I noticed that like some of my buddies from Charlie were there. So yeah, like, I think it was just like we were able to get guys in like small windows before we actually like had to like push them all the way across the airfield again to get more people on. But after 1 8 gets relieved from airfield security, the battalion mans the north and east gates. Is that is that correct? Yeah. So I, I know we only went to North Gate, like my, at least my platoon did. We only went to North Gate. Actually, I think, yeah, I think it was the whole company because there was like a rotation of like being out, out, like outside the gate, like. You know, like helping bring people in, and then there was like security, like up on the berms, like kind of like an overwatch, and then um, searching, like searching people and searching their bags after they got let in. Could you talk about your time at the North Gate, the challenges you faced, maybe some of the tough decisions you had to make? Yeah. So first time going out to North Gate, like we didn't know, like. Well, to I mean, I, I don't want to say we didn't know what to expect. Like we kind of like I thought we did. I mean, when we first rolled out there, we were told like, hey, like let the A and A or whoever, like let the A and A handle the crowd. Like it's their people; they can deal with them. And then we just kind of formed a line to kind of just 
make sure people didn't bum rush the gate. But like these dudes are like popping off AK rounds right next to our heads, and I mean, shit, these ANA dudes were like beating people pretty bad too. With like it was like with like thwicks, like just stuff off like trees or like I think like these little pieces of like PVC pipe or something. Like I don't know, but yeah, so like it, it was chaos out there. There's like flashbangs, nine bangers, like stinger grenades going off. So it was, it was a lot of chaos that first night out there. Eventually, we kind of like you know, I think it was like staff, NCOs, and officers. They could verify the papers of like who to let in. So we started to do that, but then these they they just started to frenzy, and it's like they're just like pushing up on us, and it's like eventually they push like these A and A dudes like sandwiched in between us and them, and it's just like like we need to start doing something. So we just. Again, we did whatever we had to do that was necessary, like using non-lethals, like friggin' hand-to-hand combat. Like we had to get them to to quiet down, or not quiet down, but to like I guess settle down, and uh, in order to properly process them, chaos. According to CENTCOM's report on the Abbeygate bombing, the Northeast and Abbeygates closed for three days, twenty through twenty-two August because of a lack of flights and capacity within HKIA. What was your squad doing during this time? So maybe this was like a, I think this was like the time period when we went to uh, the Southern Comfort area, because we did get pulled from Northgate for a little bit. So we went to this place called the Southern Comfort area. It's like where they were like holding, I think some overflow. And um, that was at first, it started off as like the same shit. Well, you know, just trying to get all these people under control, but like they were like in this small fenced in area, just living with trash, living with this literal like human fecal matter and piss everywhere. And it was just, it's like living in a dump, just living in a, in a dump. And, uh, you know, we had to go control them. But once, you know, we got everything under control, we were actually able to pop top and, um, talk to a lot of these families and a lot of these people and uh i got a picture of me with like a a kid he gets he's like i let him wear like my kevlar which is really cool to actually like see you know like these kids like smile and not be so scared and then like to have conversations with some families like hey like what are you guys looking forward to in america it was really cool and it humbled me a lot to be like, you know, like on a deployment, I'm like, yeah, I can't wait to get back and get some Chick-fil-A or, you know, just some, some stupid shit. I'm like, what are you guys looking forward to the most? And they're like, oh, you know, freedom. I'm like, yeah, like it, it puts it in perspective for you, like just how much we take for granted as Americans. So I think that's what we were doing. My understanding is that the Taliban commander responsible for Northgate was the least helpful of the Taliban commanders when he had to deal with. Could you comment on this? When we were at Northgate and like, we knew that there was like a Taliban checkpoint, like further down the road. Okay. Or like, that's what we heard. And then all of a sudden, like in the middle of us doing like crowd control, like a pickup truck starts like honking its horn, moving its way through the crowd. And we're like, who the fuck is this dude? We pull him out and he ended up being Taliban. It was just like this one dude. And then looking at it now, you know, like, I don't know why I do this, but like, I try to find videos of like Marines at HKIA, like, you know, I don't know, it's, it's weird, but there's a video of Northgate and, you know, there's a bunch of flashbangs going off and there's just like Taliban, like it's an a- 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 P truck 
that's got a Taliban flag on it, a bunch of Taliban fighters, and then just ride right past Northgate. So, like, we were definitely, like, super exposed to, like, the Taliban. They knew that we were there. It's just we didn't work hand-in-hand with them at Northgate. Thank God. Like, I don't envy any of my buddies that had to do that at the other gates. One word that could sum up much of the evacuation at HKIA is chaos. I think that's fair to say from everything I've seen and the people I've talked to who were there. How did now? So you you were essentially a you were a buddy team, buddy pair fire team, right? Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of weird, but so I had a third guy on my team, but we we didn't deploy with a full TO, and fortunately, one of our one of the other guys in my squad ended up breaking his wrist in Saudi Arabia, so. The third man that I had on my team, he got moved to another team. And then me being like the uh, the APL for my squad, my buddy was just saying that like, say like for an attack, like you have the three teams, like left, center, and right. Like I was going to be that center team because there's only two of us. Mm-hmm. So we're in the base element. So that's kind of where like just me and him just being a buddy team kind of came into play. Got it. Did you find yourself relying on some of the concepts and tools found in MCDP-1, warfighting, MCDP-1-3 tactics, things like intent, implicit communication, which you have mentioned already. Maybe you could talk further about that or surfaces and gaps. Yeah, so I'd say definitely, especially when it comes to like commander's intent and implicit communication that I mentioned earlier. I don't think it was like clear. Like I I don't know what kind of tactical task to use for like just moving civilians off this airfield. I mean, I'm sure if I like... When I write my orders, I have to pull the tactical tasks out in front of me, so I know I'm using the right ones. But anyway, I, I digress. We knew we knew the tasks that we had to do, and uh, that's it. We you know we just we went out, and like no matter how much friction, how much fog of war was out there, it's like everybody knew the commander's intent and what needed to get done, and what needed to get done got done by whatever means. But when I say whatever means, I also want to say that it's like the discipline that we had, like we didn't. We didn't just start opening up on civilians, like, especially like, you know, there's people jumping all over C-17s and like, that's, um, you know, within the justification for use of deadly force, like protection of government property or national critical infrastructure. Like we technically could have been authorized to start, you know, shooting these people, but like we didn't, we knew that they weren't armed, we knew that they were civilians and we used literally everything at our disposal other than like lethal means to get what needed to get done, done. So the discipline was awesome. You've talked a little bit about your leadership in the company and the battalion. Could you talk more about your leadership at HKIA, starting with your squad leader, then your platoon commander, and then company commander? Yeah, so so my squad leader, he's out now. I miss that dude. Me and him, we, we met at like our security forces training house as like little boots together. And then we ended up being roommates in our first unit together, like roommates, same squad, same fire team. And we just, you know, we'd grown up through the Marine Corps together. Like we'd pretty much been together since almost like, you know, day one. So me and him were like super tight. So, you know, whatever he needed to do, like, I don't know, you know, just, it just, it just worked really well. Like, you know, I think we had a, we had a really tight squad. We had a really tight platoon overall. I guess that bringing me to like my platoon commander. I love LT Concessi. He's a, he's awesome. Like I don't know, it's just, it's just him and like how staffs aren't he. Like they work together, how they took care of us, and like you know how we trained, how like you know at times they were hard on us in our training, but you know it paid off. And uh, 
we got really tight knit. Like it was, it was awesome. I actually was just on the phone with them the other day for like an hour. So yeah. What about your company commander? Well, now Major McGurry, Captain McGurry was awesome. I love Captain McGurry or Major McGurry now. <laughs> he would get us so hyped up for like just like squad attack ranges or just like, you know, just make me feel like a badass for rolling through the swampy areas of Camp Lejeune, you know, just relating it to like how Marines are doing this in the jungles of Vietnam and rolling around with a K-bar in our teeth, like just pure motivation. Huge shout out to Major McGurry. He's awesome. Aside from the motivation, like he, before he even went and stepped off for like HKIA, we were like waiting at the airport to depart and he brought everybody in and he, you know, he made it real. He's like, we're going to a place where somebody has been waiting their whole life and wants to fucking kill you. And like, that's like, you know, he really, he drove it home, like the seriousness of the situation. And um, overall, I think I just had great leadership. Could you talk about the VBID and mortar threat at HKIA? Do you remember much reporting or concerns about that while you were on the ground? So yeah, VBID threat. So we were at Northgate one night and there was like this huge like gas tanker truck. And it just kind of stopped. It just pulled because Northgate was like right on the edge of like this big ass highway. And this like truck just stops. And we're like, that's a huge, huge, like it's just full of, it's full of fuel. That's like super sketchy. So like we bring it up and I think, you know, it was, it was, it was there, you know, like the risk, like the, the risk was there. Nothing happened, obviously. Thank God. I think it was uh, the day of, you know, Abbeygate getting hit. There was also another high VBIT threat. There's a lot, there's a few bolos that went out and um, it got kind of real. Like we were chilling. So there was like big concrete barriers for Northgate that like kind of like funnel, like they kind of like opened up and then like at an angle, it was like a line and then it went like at a 45 degree angle out to the highway. We were like chilling in there, not dealing with the crowd, just kind of like back a little bit, like behind the actual gate and like protected by these concrete barriers. And we're chilling there, smoking cigarettes. One of the, uh, a sergeant, um, Joffy comes around and he's like, hey, like 2 1 just got hit, like put on your Kevlars, whatever. And things, you know, things were like, like things got tense. We pulled back even further and there was, you know, that increased um, bolo threat of like a, a very serious V bid. And then that's when like the sirens for the ground attack started coming. So like, we heard about two one getting hit before the sirens even started going off on the base. So it was it was super eerie, was super sketchy. So for the mortars, like the mortar threat, we'd heard about like an IDF threat since getting there. You know, they showed us where all the like bunkers were for IDF, but nothing happened until the day we were leaving, and um, you know the siren starts going off. And we had all our shit on, like main pack, everything on. We're like walking to the terminal, and I just see in the distance the uh, the C ram lighting up the sky and it slapped the mortars right out the sky. It was, it was pretty cool to see, but that was yeah, that was that was about it for mortars. So Dustin, if we could go back to 26 August, the day of the Abbey Gate bombing, could you talk a little more about what your squad was doing that day, what you were doing? So. On 26 August, like as I mentioned uh, previously, you know, we were, I think this correlates with like how the gate, some of the gates were closed just because of like how many people were 
like the base was it was getting really crowded it was really crowded i mean i'm sure from the pictures and the footage you can see all the trash that's evidence enough but yeah so 26th august we're still at north gate we just weren't letting people in we were just there as like a security presence the gate was closed and um those not directly on the wall you know we were, we were smoking cigarettes trying to you know maybe eat an mre or something just kind of sit down for a little bit you know, behind cover obviously and then like i said like you know sergeant joffy rolled around it was like hey two one just got hit and then we started kind of like pull dudes back from the gate like the the gate itself just to get some standoff in case of a v-bit attack even though with the bolo that was put out the the, <laughs> the size of that v-bit it probably would have just obliterated the walls and like really it would have it fucked us up for sure but luckily that never came we just stayed at Northgate, and then we heard the uh, the siren for ground attack, and, you know, it was just, it was, like, surreal, you know? And then eventually we got relieved, and we went back to the compound, and that's when uh, my buddy Hillrich got word from some of our friends in 2-1 that some of the guys that we knew, that we were friends with uh, back in Lake Fast, were hurt, some were, were killed, and... Um, yeah, they, they hit pretty heavy. And that sucks. You know, I can't even imagine those dudes that growing up and fast the way that, like, me and my buddies did. Um, you know, it's just, it sucks. It really sucks. It, it, it didn't seem fair. And um, it didn't seem fair, but at least, you know, they could, uh, they went out, you know, actually doing their job and doing something, you know, that they uh, love to do. Try to like how I look at it. What was your squad doing after the Abigate bombing, but before it departed from H. Kyle? We weren't at Northgate as much. I think right after the bombing, we actually ripped out with some 2-1 guys at the, at the terminal that were like handling, you know, just people coming in from the gates and like getting like, just maintaining like order, like so, in, like in order for them to go through like processing, in in the in the uh, military terminal, and um, yeah, I I was in charge. My team, me and me and Kobo, we got placed with watching these people that got through the gates, but then the DOS at the military terminal said were like no goes, like their paperwork was no good. So just kind of had to keep tabs on them, make sure they didn't do anything crazy. Like run away, just wait till they could get brought back out. Speaking of these no-goes, these people who had to be escorted back out, could you describe what it was like to observe Marines or if you ever did this yourself, bringing rejected civilians back to the gates? It sucked. I think that's one of the things that uh, really f- fucked with a lot of guys mentally and morally. Yeah, so when we got back to Kuwait, you know, like they, they had like Oscar like the Oscar team or whatever, um, come like talk to us. And, you know, it's probably, you know, like a hey, signs of like, you know, stress or like PTSD. And then he talked about uh, like moral injury. Uh, something I hadn't heard before, but I think that's what we had to face a lot, especially when it came to having to send people back out because it wasn't always just, you know, military age males just trying to sneak their way in, you know, Sometimes it was people that, you know, families, women and kids and entire families that just were just trying to escape. But, you know, they just didn't have the right paperwork. So it was tough. 
for me personally, you know, it was just like, you know, this sucks, but it's just like a band-aid. You just got to fucking, you just got to rip it off, you know, just, you know, be aggressive, kick them out and just kind of move on, you know, try to help. Hopefully, you know, we help more people than we had to kick out. But for others, they could definitely wait a lot on their conscience. Where did your platoon go after departing HKIA after the evacuation ended? We went back to Kuwait for a couple of weeks. I think that was actually really good because it kind of gave us two weeks to sit there and like process everything that we had seen and all the things, you know, just, just, just weighing on our mind and just kind of just chill out. Like, Hey, like if you guys need to go talk to some people, go talk to some people. But other than that, like you guys are like on your own schedule, just uh, take it easy and we'll pass you word when we get it. How often were you finding yourself talking to fellow Marines about what you'd seen or done or what they had seen or done? Like every, every day. I mean, even, even still now, like I talk to, when I talk to my buddies that I was there with, I talked to about it. Like it, it's, it's been on my mind every day. It, there's not a day that has gone by where I don't think about the things that I saw or the things, you know, we had to do. And it's not that I'm not proud of it. Like I'm, incredibly proud of what we were able to accomplish like we've made u.s history like it's the largest neo like how could i not be proud of that you know but seeing kind of like the underbelly of humanity always you know it's always tough especially i guess like it being a, you know i was like my first like you know combat experience so yeah um i talked about that that stuff every day with you know my boys like whether it was like in our room or Going out and, you know, having having a smoke or just, you know, even going out by myself and just kind of like just reliving everything in my head and processing it. What advice would you give future small unit leaders when it comes to talking with and helping their Marines after a mission as intense as HKIA? You know, just, just be an older brother to your dudes. You know, I actually have like a younger brother a younger sibling and uh i think that's the best way to like help your dudes out is just know that it's like hey man like we are now brothers like we're part of a tribe and no matter it could be for any situation you know like guys that fought in fallujah together like they're part of like you know a tribe like their own tribe like yeah we're like fallujah vets and for us it was like hey like we saw some shit that I don't think anybody was like necessarily prepared for. Like I never thought about, I never thought about seeing that type of shit, like joining the Marine Corps. I knew, I knew humanitarian stuff as part of what the Marine Corps did. And I wanted to be a part of that too. But like people think of combat and they think of like, you know, the opening scene of saving private Ryan. And, you know, I, I digress. I guess the best advice I could give is just, you know, be the older brother, like the father figure to, you, to the guys under you. Cause they look up to you a lot more than you realize and that's just the best way to be there for them like you guys like after an intense situation like you'll forever be brothers you'll forever be bonded in some way shape or form and no one will ever be able to relate with them like you are and you know just just be just be, just be like a good big brother <laughs> what was it like returning to camp lejeune my understanding is a lot of people there a lot of marines had no real idea of the intensity of the mission or that firefights with the Taliban occurred. You just talk about that experience coming home. Yeah. Like 
it's it was weird. Like coming home, like we you know we had like our little homecoming or whatever. Um, our families, you know, that was something else. But like, just there was like you know signs like outside Camp Lejeune that was like "Welcome home," uh, you guys did it, like good job, stuff like that. But then it was like, and I, I just want to say that it's like obviously it's like no one expects attention for this or recognition for this. It's not why we join or do it, but it was just like something in this scale. Like we just closed out America's longest war. And everyone was just kind of like, what's trending on, on TikTok? What's, what's like, you know, it was just kind of like, oh, wow, that's crazy. People are falling from planes. And then it's like, we got back. And it's like, oh, yeah. I had one dude back home. He was just like, just like straight up was just like, I bet you saw some pretty crazy stuff, huh? And it's just like, you have no, like, you have no fucking idea, dude. Was this a fellow Marine? No, it was, it was just some dude back home. But, like, even I did have, like, a run-in with uh, a Marine at the PX. And he just asked who I was with. And I was just, like, you know, I told him 1A. And he was, like, oh, you just got back on. I was, like, yeah. He was, like, oh, shit. I'm, like, yeah, we saw you guys over there. Like, good shit. It's not that nobody didn't care. It's just that, like, I don't know. It just kind of was, like, hey, this was, like, a big event. And then we got back. And it was, like, all right, let's just not talk about it anymore. So there's no significant pause, no no time to really commemorate think through reflect on what happened you came back and it it felt like business as usual i mean i suppose so i mean i know one eight like you know we got back and like what was any like anything crazy like training and you know they kind of let us you know have some time it was like the period of like the marine corps ramadan it was getting to that anyway so it was like we were kind of just you know doing admin stuff taking it easy they gave us some extra libo but I don't know. It just seemed like uh, maybe I'm not like, you know, maybe not to the Marine Corps, but just like nationally, it was just kind of like, yeah, Afghanistan evacuation. And then, all right, what's, what's trending now? Mm -hmm. The news cycle moved on. Yeah. And like, you know, I guess that's just the, the, the times that we live in, but I don't know. You served alongside service members from other nations. Could you talk about how the interactions went and what these other service members were doing? I thought it was awesome. That's just something that like I look forward to doing like in the future of like my career as a Marine is just like working with like, you know, other NATO countries or just like other countries, militaries, just to get like more of a perspective, like how they do things, like how they take pride in, in the same craft, but like in their, in their way. My experience with other nations at HKIA was with, I interacted with like the Germans. That was cool. Uh, like the language barrier, like, you know, like, cause not everybody was trying to like, you know, come to the United States. Like there's people that were trying to go to Germany. There's people trying to go to Sweden, Norway, like even Ukraine. Like there were some Ukrainian dudes there <sighs> looking at Ukraine now. So rough transition. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but anyway, I, I digress. Not really funny, but. Yeah, so I got to talk with some Aussies. I didn't work with the Brits, but, you know, I did talk to some of them, like, just in passing. No, I don't, I don't think it was negative at all. You know, like, they had their parts that they had to play in the mission. I think they executed what they had to do to the best of their ability. Uh, I'm glad that we had their support. Obviously, we were, like, the main effort. Like, you know, it was, it was like, our war in Afghanistan, so... I have nothing bad to say about working with any 
other NATO countries. I thought it was I thought it was really cool. Got to try out their MREs, got to interact with them, get their point of view on things. You know, it was it was pretty cool. Yeah. To what extent did you work with U.S. Army elements, and how did those interactions go? Army elements. I think there was some. I think you mentioned Task Force Polar Bear. I think those are the dudes that can MRAPs. We first got onto the airfield and they were firing like the warning shots into the ground that I thought were the, uh, it was like the machine gun fire at us. But that was, <laughs> I think that was them and like the uh, MRAPs. I saw them like through the night, like they pushed out like outside of the civilian terminal. You know, they did their part too. The 82nd, they were like the, so we were the first Marines there and the last Marines to leave. But in order for us to leave, and I talked with, some 82nd dudes there. So they kind of ripped out with us while we left. And then they kind of just like slowly like collapsed their positions until they were able to bounce out as well. They told me their plan too. It was like they were all going to load up on C-17s and like circle the area. And then say if they left someone behind, they're going to have to land again and like get them out. So they definitely had, you know, some hairy, probably like a pretty hairy part towards the end. From my perspective, working with them, like at the civilian terminal, like with the 82nd and doing like some crowd control. And I think, I think this is just maybe a difference between how the branches differ as like warfighting organizations. I think just with the army being, you know, it has a lot more people than the Marine Corps. I think they might, they lean more towards like centralized command. I don't want to say that necessarily. It's not like the officer or whatever has like gives the ominous dominus on everything. I don't know. I'm not in the army, but like there was one example of like me as a corporal at the time walking up to another corporal and kind of giving them like a quick game plan of like, Hey man, this is what we're going to do. Get your guys. And like, we're going to, you know, do this. He's like, hold on, man. Um, like a corporal for us is different than a corporal for y'all. Let me go get my sergeant. And I was just kind of like, dude, an NCO is an NCO. But, you know, who knows? Maybe that's just him as an individual. I don't know. They were there. You know, I, I talked with some of the 82nd dudes or just Army dudes in general. They said that we love screaming and yelling. And, hey, like Marines do. Like, there's always going to be that branch rivalry. But, you know, I'm glad that they were there. And I'm, I'm glad, you know, everybody was there to, you know, play their part. Could you talk about your experiences with the Muse female search team? They had a few fets. You know, we had a female corn, a corpsman that was like a part of them. You know, you know, I had some friends like working on those on those fet teams. Uh, I had you know um, some interaction with Nicole G, who was in my cousin's uh, platoon in COB two four. You know, like the fet teams definitely had a huge role in helping you know, search, like, you know, women and children, like, you know, they definitely played their part. They were definitely vital, I would say, to the uh, to the operation as a whole, just to kind of help things go a little more smoothly with the uh, female populace, just because of cultural differences. I'm glad we got to work with them. I'm glad, uh, I'm thankful for all the experiences, you know, worth working with them. If that makes sense, I don't yeah. know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You've talked a little bit about discipline already and the role it played in your unit. Could you talk a little more about that? I mean, how did your leaders seek to maintain discipline among the squad, the platoon, the company? What seemed to work? What didn't? I think that all went into just, you know, preparing like the workup and then just, you know, like continuing to perfect our craft throughout the deployment leading up to HKIA. You know, I don't, when there, there was like certain, you know, there's obviously like a certain precedence. Like these dudes have been, 
slept in three days. Like, are you really going to get on someone's ass for not shaving? Where discipline mattered, it mattered the most. Like, you know, it showed and like we executed and showed that we had great discipline. We all took it very seriously. And um, we knew that we had our like, you know, command watching our backs. You know, like they they put out for us and we put out for them. We've talked about the role that exhaustion played. I mean, you said just a moment ago, many members of 1-8 are up for three days straight. Would you talk about how exhaustion affected you personally and maybe the Marines and your, your fire team and squad? And how would you try to, to overcome or mitigate that throughout the evacuation? I think what <laughs> overcame it was adrenaline, just pure adrenaline. Like, it was tough, like, you know, especially being, like, on the airfield. Like, there's just no way. There's, there wasn't a lot of time, a lot of place to, like, get out of the sun. I think there's a picture of me, like, on our first, like, actual, we finally got relieved for a little bit. And you can see, like, I got sunburnt. And you can see, like, where my, my sunglasses were, like, the raccoon eyes. And, then like, even where, like, my chin strap was. Like, it was just funny-looking pattern on my face, like. I think adrenaline overcame a lot of it and to mitigate it, you know, just, just check up on your guys, you know, like if someone's like really hurting, like really hurting, maybe just try to like relieve them, have them go like find some shade, sit in it for like, you know, a few minutes, drink some water, get back, you know, just taking care of your guys. What were the most frustrating aspects of your mission at HKIA? What were the most rewarding? It was just, you know, it was just a tough mission. Like no one, no one expected it to be the way that it was then that's just that's just friction you know i suppose or like fog of war or whatever you want to call it so yeah the most frustrating would probably just be the moral dilemma but you have a mission and you you have to get it done the most rewarding was being able to accomplish that mission like you know saving people that we did save it makes it worth it. Like I talked about my time in the in the comfort area and being able to interact with the families, like kids, and like just seeing like happiness on their faces, like relief, just pure relief that they're not gonna under threat of the Taliban. That's what made it worth it. What actions of your fire team, squad, or platoon at HKIA make you proudest? Just how we handled this, how we executed everything. You know, we I really think we did the very best that we were able to do given the circumstances like i don't really see how much different it could have been so i'm just i'm just i'm just proud of how we uh i, I just just proud of like how close we were how tight knit that we fucking we pulled through what are your thoughts on the role and value of decision games things like DFCs, TDGs, EDGs in training and educating Marines, specifically for a mission like what you faced at HKIA? I think DFCs would be awesome. I think DFCs are more so recognized now. I think I told you offline earlier that I was talking to my buddy who's getting out recently, and I brought up to him, I brought up that I was doing this podcast with you and that we did the DFC class, and he had no clue what a DFC was. Hmm. And, you know, we done countless TDGs on the ship. Everybody knows what a TDG is. But I told him what DFCs are, and he was like, dude, that's fucking awesome. You know, so I think especially a case like HKIA, where there's a lot of moral dilemmas, but there is like an overarching 
or there's just a mission that just it needs to get completed. Mm-hmm. I think DFCs are are great for just critical thinking development. You know, I I'm gonna use like I will use my own experience in DFCs for my guys like going forward, especially on this Mew. Because we're going back on the 24th Mew, you know. So what do you think about having DFCs based on the experiences of Marines at HKIA at like boot camp, corporal's course, sergeant's course, things like that? I think if boot camp was more like what people thought, like, you know, like people before joining, like, you know, people think of like the Marine Corps, especially, you know, guys that were like me, you know, they want to join infantry. And they're like, yeah, like, I want to go do that shit. And I get to boot camp and it's a lot of drill and uniform stuff. Like if there was like DFCs and there was like more like, you know, like training how to be like a grunt, like field craft and whatnot. Like, I think it would be hugely beneficial to the Marine Corps, you know, especially force design 2030, trying to develop more critical thinkers. I think it could be a great tool to like start that development early. What's the one thing that you'd like Marines and other service members to know about what your squad, your platoon, your company did at HKIA? I think, uh, you know, like this, I guess just Marines in general, like the Marine Corps, you know, the Marine Corps does more with less. I think, I think we really executed that like to like its fullest extent, like the best way you could picture it. Like, especially as that company being on that airfield with just the equipment, like, you know, just, I guess, just our equipment, you know, our standard loadout, nothing to deal with crowd control for thousands when there's only like maybe just under 200 of us we made it work and we did so you know we we did so without resorting to lethal means fitfo we figured it the fuck out you know like we did the most that we could with the least amount of what we had are there any aspects of alpha 18's time at hkai that we haven't touched on that you'd like to address for you know the marines of aztec 18 HKIA, you know, being the main effort there. And for a time, the only effort. I think uh, I think that's the best way to, to put it. So Dustin, I want to sincerely thank you for coming on and talking about this. I know it's not easy at all. And it means the world to me personally. And I think I think it's gonna benefit a lot of people particularly service members, particularly Marines and other folks who were there. But as I ask all my guests, do you have any parting thoughts or shots for our listeners? You know, if there's any Marines or sailors or just any service members in general, like if you're at HKIA, if you weren't, if you're just struggling, like it's okay to talk about things. It's okay to go get help. Like don't, don't be afraid to go get help or just, just talk about things, you know, it's okay. It's going to get better. Things always get better. Dustin, thanks so much, brother. Hey, thanks, man.